Hi friends, I'm Tierney. And I'm Shelby. And we're Dead, Dead Drunk. Drunk. Hey y'all, how was your Xmas? Eh, it was probably pretty good. No, or Hanukkah <laughs> or whatever you celebrate. I hope it was good. Yeah, I hope your holiday was great. If you're Jewish, I hope you really enjoyed Chinese food in the movies. That's actually what my mom's Jewish boss said that he does. I've so. heard that before. That sounds freaking awesome. That's what I said. It sounds like a really amazing Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really jealous, actually. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. So if you did that, then I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you had a joyful time and I hope you're ready for less of a joyful time listening to this podcast. Yeah. I hope you're ready to get back into the story of Scott Peterson. What, what, what? Yeah. So if you want, you can have your drink from last time ready because you'll probably have a ton of leftover eggnogs because not a lot of people like it. Or you can go ahead and make this week's, which is Grand Marnier hot chocolate. Yummy. Yeah, this one is a little bit more involved. So you could either do it a super lazy way, which I'm sure doesn't taste as great, or you could do it this way, which is in a large saucepan, you're going to stir together one cup of half and half, two cups of milk, and a half a cup of orange juice. It doesn't have to be fresh, I don't think, you know. (laughs) It doesn't have to be fresh squeezed. It can be like the Tropicana. Yeah, who wants to do that? Yeah. Add in a pinch of salt and then bring the mixture to just over a boil on medium heat. In a small heat-proof bowl, whisk together some chopped chocolate, about six ounces, and then add about two-thirds cup of the hot milk mixture until the mixture is smooth, and then whisk the chocolate mixture into the remaining milk mixture, and then you're going to simmer it for a little bit, whisking for two minutes, then stir in the Grand Marnier. And that's it. Then you pour it into some cups, and you drink. Why are we drinking Grand Marnier? Because it's one of the last things that Lacey Peterson picked up on her last trip to Trader Joe's. Wow. Yep. On December 23rd, 2002. Then she went missing on December 24th, 2002. So, as a quick catch-up, she was eight months pregnant when she went missing, and it wasn't until April of the following year that both her body and the body of the Peterson's unborn son, Connor, was discovered washed up on the shores near the Berkeley Marina, which, again, was just under two miles away from the place where Scott had been fishing. That, coupled with a lot of other things, like the multiple affairs that he was having throughout the marriage and a few bits of evidence that they found in his warehouse, like little bits of cement and stuff, which they believed he used to make anchors to weigh down her body to drop into the bay, and the fact that he looked up tidal movements and bought a boat before she went missing, made authorities suspect him from the get-go. It's always the husband. Yeah, it is always the husband. They arrested him, and now we're going to get into his case. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm down. On January 20th, 2004, a judge determined that in order to have a fair trial, it would have to be moved outside of the Modesto area. Because of the large amount of press surrounding the case, Peterson was majorly hated in the Modesto area and almost universally considered guilty. Yep. Yeah, so they moved it to Redwood City. Which is probably pretty cool. That sounds like a really cool place to be. Heck yeah, dude. (laughs) 
In preparation for the trial, Peterson hired Mark Garagos as his defense attorney. Rick Destasso led the prosecution and opened his argument by laying out the authorities' suspicions of what happened that Christmas Eve and the role that Scott Peterson had in his wife's death. Destasso told the court that the Modesto police had only found one 10-pound concrete anchor on Peterson's 14-foot aluminum fishing boat. According to Destasso, this wouldn't have been enough weight to keep Peterson's boat in place while he was fishing. In addition to this, the investigators had learned that Peterson had recently purchased an 80-pound bag of cement that was now all but gone. So where did the rest of the cement go? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. To further support their argument against Peterson, the prosecution called Detective Henry Dodge Hendy as a witness to describe the evidence in detail for the court. Now, just to refresh you on that evidence, which I mentioned a little bit of earlier, here's what the investigators found when they searched Peterson's house. There was, of course, the cement residue in Peterson's truck bed and on the warehouse floor, which Dostasso mentioned in the opening arguments. Then there were two large tubs, a pair of Nike tennis shoes, and a shop vac found in the warehouse where Peterson stored his boat. They also discovered a claw hammer in the back of his truck, which also had some cement residue on it. And finally, there was the discovery of the bloodstains inside the truck and the strand of dark hair found on a pair of Peterson's pliers. Now, Hendy said that there were brownish marks found on the driver's side door, the steering wheel, and on one of Peterson's toolboxes. He went on to say that only some of the stains tested positive for blood, although he did not say whether or not the blood was Scott's or Lacey's. I don't believe they were able to determine that. Okay, yeah, that was going to be my question. The defense countered this by pointing to the fact that in the weeks after Lacey disappeared, Scott told several friends that, and news reporters that he had cut himself on the truck's toolbox. A close friend of Sharon Rocha, Lacey's mother, actually testified that Peterson had told her he would not be surprised if the police found blood in the truck since he frequently cut himself. I mean, also, it's like it's extra hard because Lacey was his wife. If they find her DNA in his car, it's like, yeah, it's more than likely that she was in there. Then Hendy discussed the single strand of dark hair that had been found in a pair of needle nose pliers. Tests of the hair found that it could have come from Lacey Peterson, but there was no definite answer. Hendy also said that the single piece of hair was sealed in an envelope as evidence, but when the investigators retrieved the envelope two months later, they found two strands. And there was no explanation for this. Interesting. Also, like, what is the significance of this hair? Are they saying that he used the pliers to, like, pull her hair out or something? I don't know. I think (laughs) it's just, again, her DNA in the warehouse and in the boat. The pliers were, like, in the boat. Mm. But, again, like you already said, she was his wife. Mm -hmm. So... It's It's not out of the realm of possibility for her hair to be on his stuff. Right. Because I know, at least for me, my hair, I like my hair falls out of my head at an alarming rate. (laughs) Oh, mine too. Oh, I think I'm balding. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it it goes everywhere. So, I mean. I mean, there's definitely some of my hair in your car, uh, in your bed. Yeah. If you go missing. (laughs) Yeah, you're in trouble, man, because there's a lot of my DNA over your place. So, like. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So, I yeah, mean, I don't know. Garagos. <laughs> this was actually Garagos's explanation in defense of Scott. He said that it was fairly common for a wife's hair to be found in her husband's stuff. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. We support you in that <laughs> argument. Yeah. The defense went on to point out the prosecution's lack of direct evidence, which was a valid argument as the case against Scott Peterson was mostly circumstantial. Furthermore, they suggested that the fetal remains recovered from the shore of the bay were that of a full-term infant. 
I almost said full-time infant. Like that was his job. <laughs> full-time infant. Once an infant, always an infant. <laughs> they then theorized that Lacey was instead kidnapped, held until after she gave birth. Then both her and Connor were murdered and dumped in the bay. So pretty much exactly what you guessed in part one. To counter this assertion, the prosecution's medical experts argued that the baby was not full term and had in fact died at the same time as his mother. Then they presented their own theory of what happened to Lacey Peterson. They alleged that Peterson took his already deceased wife to the warehouse to get his boat and dump her body in the bay. They then pointed out to the court that Lacey and Connor's bodies washed up on the Richmond shoreline, which was less than two miles away from where Peterson told the police he had been fishing, which, again, not a great look. The prosecution then pointed to the fact that Peterson had changed his appearance and purchased a car under his mother's name in an effort to avoid the press. They also showed the court how he had added two pornographic television channels to his cable service within days of Lacey's disappearance. According to the prosecution, this meant that he knew she would not be returning home. Oh my god. Or that he just like, I don't know, it sounds so insensitive. Just like, oh well my wife's not here, I might as well download porn. Yeah. And if that's the way you think, you're a shitty person, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're a murderer. Yeah, that's also true. You can be a shitty person and not be a murderer. Yeah, I don't think anybody's arguing that he's not a shitty person. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, again, what I'm saying here is, Scott, you did yourself no favors. Yeah. This is a really bad look. Mm -hmm. They also called Rick Cheng, a hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, as an expert witness on the tides in the San Francisco Bay. The prosecution hoped he would clearly explain to the court how Lacey's body might have ended up washing up on the Richmond shore after being dumped just under two miles away. However, under cross-examination, Cheng admitted to the court that his findings were probable, not precise. Then as the trial moved on, the prosecution began discussing Peterson's affair with Amber Frey and their taped phone calls. Frey hired her own attorney to represent her as a witness, Gloria Allred. But she had not been bound by the gag order that everyone else who was involved with the trial was. So she was pretty into the media attention. While she maintained that her client had no opinion on whether or not Peterson was guilty, Allred appeared frequently on televised news programs and often spoke of how she sided with the prosecution. Not good. Not good for Scott and not good for Allred. <laughs> I can't imagine that she had a wonderful career after that. Yeah. The defense also called what they expected to be an expert witness to the stand. Charles March, a fertility specialist, was called to the stand in the hopes that his testimony would completely exonerate Peterson by explaining that Lacey's fetus actually died a week after the prosecutors claimed. However, under cross-examination, March admitted that his findings were based on an anecdote from one of Lacey's friends stating that she had taken a home pregnancy test on June 9, 2002. When the prosecution then pointed out that there were no medical records of this, March became flustered and even asked Destasso to cut him, quote, some slack, which immediately undermined his credibility. Because you don't ask somebody to cut you some slack when you're on the witness stand. Yeah. Ultimately, the defense's expert witness also flopped on the stand and left everyone in the courtroom absolutely unconvinced of Peterson's innocence. On November 3rd, 2003, after five months of testimony, the jury was ready to begin the deliberation on whether or not Scott Peterson was innocent or guilty. And if you thought that the trial and the whole other thing was crazy, wait until you hear what happens with his jury. Lunch had already been delivered, so naturally the jurors ate before getting down to business. They quickly elected Gregory Jackson as their jury foreman and began examining the evidence. 
Using the whiteboard provided them in the room, they mapped out a timeline of events, beginning with the last time Peterson said he saw his wife before going fishing on Christmas Eve morning. They charted Peterson's cell phone record, computer usage at his home, and the time he purchased his parking pass for the Berkeley Marina. In mapping Peterson's cell phone use, the jury found that on December 24th, Peterson went four hours without making a single call, which varied from his usual behavior of making calls every few minutes. When the timeline was complete, the jurors turned to the recorded interviews. First, they listened to Peterson's first interview with Modesto Police Detective Al Brocchini. They originally heard the tape in the third week of the trial, but the importance of this interview didn't hit them until they replayed it for just the 12 of them in that jury room. That's when they discovered that Peterson lied to the police just six hours after his wife is reported missing. The jury noted that each time Peterson gave an explanation for something, he sounded more and more deceptive. Not a great look. Again, yeah. <laughs> if he is innocent, he's not helping himself. Yeah. Then they listened to the taped conversation between Peterson and Lacey's mother, Sharon Rocha. When she tells him that a search of the bay turned up only an anchor and not a body, Scott can be heard whistling as if in relief. According to Greg Baratlis, who had been on this jury, it was getting impossible for them to tell whether or not Peterson was telling the truth. Baratlis said, quote, can we believe anything he said throughout this whole case is the truth? Honestly, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. In regards to the whistling in relief, I thought it could be either that they didn't find her and you're going to get away with it or either good. Maybe she's still alive. Yeah, you I know? was thinking so, that too and you said that. Yeah. Again, so it's you don't not, know how you're going to react to things. Yeah, but it's not an immediate, oh, that guy's a murderer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, here's where the trouble starts in the jury room. Jackson, the jury's chosen foreman, didn't form many friendships with his fellow jurors. However, he was very dedicated to his role and paid rapt attention in the courtroom. Jackson had filled 19 notebooks with notes that he took during the trial. Holy shit. Yeah, this guy was in it to win it. He took this seriously. Yeah. After the second day of deliberations, he came up with a plan that involved meticulously combing through the evidence and each witness testimony. In addition to his detailed notes, Jackson wanted a detailed analysis of the case to prove behind any semblance of a doubt whether or not this man was guilty of murder. This plan didn't sit well with the other jurors who complained that it would take them months to go through all of that, which is a ridiculous complaint to me since you're deciding a man's fate. Yeah. (laughs) By the third day, the jurors had still not taken a vote, but it was obvious that most of them were leaning towards conviction. According to the rest of the jury, Jackson was dragging this along. He offered up his expertise first as a lawyer and then as a doctor to better examine the evidence in the case. But the others just wanted him to be a juror. The other 11 jurors wanted him to sit down and go through all of his notes, but the tension in the room proved to be too much for him. So on Monday morning, the fourth day of deliberation, Jackson asked the judge to remove him from the jury. Quote, he told us he's never been through a process that was so argumentative, said Baratlis, who then went on to explain that tensions were high in the room, but that was to be expected since the 12 of them were responsible for deciding if another man lives or dies. Ultimately, the judge refused to remove him and instead called the jury back into the courtroom to reprimand them for not getting along. Oh, my God. What are we at summer camp? I immediately thought of you in your classroom going, you guys need to get it together. (laughs) We are Uh, all friends. (laughs) We are all friends here and we need to decide whether or not this man is guilty of murder. (laughs) That would be a fun conversation to have with four year olds. (laughs) So his request to be removed from the jury was denied, but it really angered Baratlis, who works as a coach for youth sports. So (laughs) Baratlis suggested they vote for a new foreman. 
The motion failed by just one vote and Jackson kept his role. However, the tension in the room was still mounting and even more upheaval in the jury room followed on the next day. Oh, God. On the fifth day of deliberations, Francis Gorman, also known as juror number seven, was in danger of getting thrown off the jury completely. The timeline that the court proceedings set up stated that Peterson had been confronted about his marital status on December 6th. If you remember, Sean came in and was like, hey, you're married. And he was like, I lost my wife on December 6th. The prosecution said that shortly after that, on December 8th, Peterson then checked a website to learn about the changing tides of the San Francisco Bay, which they say indicates premeditation. The defense argued this by pointing out that the date on the information that Peterson printed out said that the website was accessed on December 5th. The prosecution's expert witness never explained this discrepancy. After hearing the testimony, Gorman had checked it out herself on her home computer and discovered that the website in question wasn't updated every day. This meant that despite the discrepancy pointed out by the defense, Peterson could have accessed and printed out the information on the 8th. Gorman mentioned her research to her fellow jurors pretty early on in the proceedings, but before she could go into detail with her findings, another juror warned her that she shouldn't say anything about it at all. Why? Well, jury members are only supposed to base their decision off of the information presented to them in court and not off of their own individual research. Oh, right, right, right. Which is actually not allowed. That makes sense. Yeah. So on the fifth day of deliberations, when they were so close to taking a vote, two of the other jurors sent a note to the judge stating that they didn't think Gorman could be objective in her decision making anymore because of the research that she'd done. Mm -hmm. After interviewing her and the other members of the jury, Gorman was removed from the panel. But that didn't stop her from talking with the press. In an interview she made shortly after being removed from the jury, Gorman expressed her concerns that the jury wasn't getting all of the important information. Quote, I don't know why the witness was allowed to give us the impression that Scott had gone on the website on the 5th. End quote. Once she was released, an alternate named Rochelle Nice was sent in and the deliberations had to start from scratch. So the information from the website... They say he got on the 5th because of the date on the printed information, but... But he could have accessed it anywhere from then until then the 8th? Yeah, I think they're... I don't know. He could have accessed it anytime. Yeah, anytime in between there. To me, that just... It sounds like something that the court should have figured out, or like the attorney should have figured out. It should have been... Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like really important, right? what it could be it's also it's not odd in my opinion it's not odd for scott to look this up in preparation for buying a fishing boat to go fishing in the san francisco bay yeah that's true he did fish their first date was deep sea fishing yeah so it was the thing he did it wasn't like all of a sudden he was like i'm gonna be a fisherman yeah that's a good point yeah to me it's not it's not all that crazy. Yeah, that might be something you want to know when you're preparing to go fishing, even if you're not going to dump a body. Right. So with starting from scratch comes the selection of a new foreman. And this time, the jury selective Steve Cardosi, whom they all referred to as Cap. Cardosi, who was the youngest member of the jury at age 29, worked as a paramedic firefighter. He recalled thinking that the defense team would never choose him as a juror, but he ended up being the man that led them to their decision. On the sixth day, they lost another member of their jury when Jackson decided he had finally had enough. Again, (laughs) he had had enough again. (laughs) That's what I wrote. I was like, God, this guy wants off this jury. (laughs) 
This time, when he asked the judge to excuse him, he obliged and was replaced by alternate Dennis Lear. The other jurors quickly caught him up to speed on the case, which he felt was sufficient enough to keep moving in the process. So they didn't start all over this time. They just were kind of like, here's where we're at. Okay, here we go. Within a few hours, they had all found Peterson guilty of the murders. Now they had the task of deciding whether or not those murders were premeditated. They pretty much all believed that he had carefully planned out the murder of his wife, but they didn't think he even really considered his unborn son. Cardosi recalled asking his fellow jurors, if he had really wanted to make sure his unborn child died, wouldn't he have stabbed his wife in the stomach? I guess so, but if he was going to like throw them in the water anyway and drown them, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, if you ki- any way you kill a pregnant mother, the fetus will die. Yeah. So I don't know that he has a very valid point, but... Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, on the seventh day of deliberations, they decided to split the verdict. And on November 12th, 2004, Scott Peterson was convicted of first-degree murder in the death of his wife, Lacey Peterson, and second-degree murder in the death of his unborn son, Connor. Four weeks later, the jury convened again to make the weighty decision on Peterson's life. On the first day of this penalty phase, they voted Cardosi foreman again, and he wasted no time in laying out the reasons why Peterson should live and other reasons why he should die. On the second day of deliberations, a Friday, they took a poll. Six voted for death and two for life, while four abstained. Then they rested for the weekend. But on Monday, two of the jurors still voted for life. That's when Cardosi asked for the autopsy photos, along with a photo of a very pregnant Lacey just before she died. Cardosi, who favored the death penalty, stated that he needed to see the photos of, quote, what Peterson had done to her. But he also wanted the other jurors to get one last look as well. Honestly, the photos brought a lot of the jurors to tears in a lot of the reports that I read. Understandably, um, the jurors are not sociopaths. Yeah. And in my mind, it seemed like a persuasion tactic mm-hmm. from Cardosi. Yeah. Who just who wanted the death penalty yeah. for him. Yeah. Uh, it worked for most of them, except for one man. He was Roman Catholic and he was struggling with the idea of putting another man to death. So he favored the option of life in prison. He argued that Peterson had no criminal history and cited his many good deeds throughout his life. Despite the infidelity, he seemed to be a relatively okay guy. He's not obviously great to women, but he's not like, he's not a terror. Mm -hmm. Then he asked the other 11 jurors why they favored the option of death. I don't know what they said, but whatever it was, it was enough to convince him. So just after 11.30 a.m. on Monday, the third day of deliberation in the penalty phase, the jurors wrote all of their votes down on a piece of paper and handed them to Cardosi. He read each of them alone, echoing the same word over and over 12 times. Death. I just got chills. You're welcome. (laughs) So on December 13th, 2004, the jury sentenced him to death by lethal injection. That following March, Judge Alfred A. DeLucci also ordered Peterson to pay $10,000 towards the cost of Lacey's funeral, calling her murder, quote, cruel, uncaring, heartless, and callous. The court also decided that the $250,000 life insurance payout that Peterson had taken out on Lacey would be paid to her mother, Sharon Rocha. When did he take out this life insurance policy? I didn't see that anywhere. Okay. I'm like curious. But it could have been... When they got married. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for married couples to have life insurance policies. Well, yeah, but if uh, he took it out a week before she died, then I would be like... Oh, yeah, then it's suspicious. I feel like it would have been mentioned if it was within 
So Peterson, now convicted and sentenced, joined the more than 700 other inmates waiting on death row at San Quentin State Prison, while his case moved on to the Supreme Court of California to begin the automatic appeal phase. Right. Peterson's defense team was not ready to give up on the man that they still considered innocent. A lot of people do, actually. In September of 2006, nearly two years after Scott went into prison, former Congressman William E. Dannemeyer sent a letter to the California Attorney General and other state officials claiming that he believed Lacey Peterson was murdered by members of a satanic cult and not by Peterson. I don't believe any of this, but I felt I had to include it because it was some kind of theory. Yeah, what? It it doesn't make any sense. Was it David Berkowitz? <laughs> It definitely wasn't him because he's he wasn't out. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> Six years later, on July 6, 2012, Peterson's new attorney, Cliff Gardner, filed a 423-page appeal of his sentence. The appeal stated that the publicity surrounding the trial combined with shoddy jury selections, incorrect evidentiary rulings, and various other mistakes deprived Peterson of a fair trial. It argued that Judge DeLucci, who had now passed away, should have excluded the testimony of a certified dog finding Lacey's scent at the Berkeley Marina Pier, which Garagos, Peterson's former defense lawyer, called voodoo and nonsense. We'll get into the dog. Okay. <laughs> California Attorney General Kamala Harris, who I believe recently withdrew her yeah, candidacy for presidency, filed her response on January 26, 2015, arguing against the appeal and sustaining the court's decision of death. The brief gave a few key arguments for their decision. The first of which being the fact that when Lacey disappeared on Christmas Eve, Peterson was just weeks away from a life-changing event, the birth of his first child. Mm -hmm. This was a responsibility that would last a lifetime, and Scott did not seem ready for that. Right, especially with the comments about the vasectomy and stuff, right? Yeah. And during a different recorded conversation with Amber Frey, he mourned over the fact that he had never enjoyed, quote, a prolonged period of freedom from responsibility in his life. Yeah, not looking good for you, Scott Peterson. No. Then, of course, there's the fact that Scott told the police he had gone fishing by himself, which was an odd thing to do on Christmas Eve morning. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, if you were going to go fishing on Christmas Eve, like, bring a friend. Um, Why yeah, wouldn't you especially go? Especially when your wife is pregnant at home. Yeah. On, I don't, on Christmas Eve. I don't know why you wouldn't help her. Or, like, uh, yeah. Just or just like, hang out. Yeah, it's a holiday. I feel like most people spend time with their families on Christmas Eve, not, like, go fishing by themselves. It's just... It was strange, but maybe that's maybe that's what he liked to do. Maybe it was like his thinking time, his alone time. But Christmas Eve. Yeah, no, that's weird. Then Camilla Harris mentioned that as the authorities searched for Lacey and Connor in the San Francisco Bay, Peterson made many trips back to the Berkeley Marina. He never stopped to talk with anyone, but instead, as the prosecution argued, Peterson was there to see if searchers were looking in the right place. They also pointed out his highly suspicious behavior also quoted which was not consistent with that of a worried father and husband for example they indicated the pornography subscriptions that peterson ordered less than two weeks after her disappearance as well as how he sold her car and then considered selling the home just under a month later like no, if she hasn't been found most husbands would be like oh maybe she's you know still out there he's just like assuming that she's never coming back yeah which is a i mean at eight months pregnant, it was probably a safe assumption from the get-go, but it looks really suspicious. Peterson also stopped the mail from coming to the home and started using the room they had planned to use as a nursery for storage instead. 
Attorney General Harris believes that this meant Peterson, quote, knew Lacey and Connor were not coming home. Finally, the response dictated that although they don't know exactly how Lacey died or how Peterson got her body into the bay, it doesn't really matter. What really mattered was the fact that during Peterson's affair with another woman, he drove somewhere around three hours and 180 miles round trip from Modesto to allegedly go fishing for only about an hour on the San Francisco Bay on Christmas Eve morning, the same morning that his wife went missing. And then was found in the San Francisco Bay. Yeah. So it's it was so there's too much coincidence. Exactly. He's innocent. Like, what are the odds that astronomical? Yeah. So he remained on death row. Last year, in January of 2018, new evidence was sent to the federal court in California for review. Later that year, on December 17th, Peterson's sister-in-law went on the Dr. Phil show to tell the world about this new evidence and prove that Scott was an innocent man. I love Dr. Phil. I need to go watch this episode, like, (laughs) ASAP. Janie Peterson stated that the Modesto police failed to follow up with 14 witnesses, including a mailman who she considers essential to proving his innocence. The new evidence is also showcased in the 2018 A&E docuseries, The Murder of Lacey Peterson, which we discussed in part one. Yeah. The show, which may or may not be aiming to make Peterson look innocent, details the accounts of multiple witnesses who claim to have seen Lacey Peterson walking the family dog after the time that Scott had left to go fishing. Yeah. Oh, I mm-hmm. guess that makes sense because what was he going to do? Come back and get her? Yeah. So Janie said the mailman signed an affidavit that said if Mackenzie was inside or out in the yard, she would bark at the mailman. And on December 24th, the mailman came by and Mackenzie was not on the property. So that means that Lacey was also not on the property when the mailman came by. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which was at what time? I don't know. When I get the mail, it's usually noonish or like three. So it's sometime in the afternoon. And they saw her walking her dog later that morning. So he Scott left at 930 a.m. Yeah. And they saw her walking later that morning. It's it doesn't. So, add up. yeah, I guess I never thought about that. Like he would have had to go to the warehouse, come back and get her. And then remember what I said in part one about the neighbors finding Mackenzie. Yeah. Mackenzie was running around with her leash still attached. But right. Scott also wasn't home. Right. And like even if he if was going to take her body in the morning, why would he let the dog out with her leash still on? So a few things don't add up. Dr. Phil also asked CBS 13 reporter Gloria Gomez whether or not she found anything odd about Scott Peterson since she had interviewed him before his arrest. Gomez reportedly told him, quote, he was very particular about me taking off my shoes when I first approached the house. So that was odd. It's not really odd. People ask other people. Shoes off, household. (laughs) People ask other people to take off their shoes when you enter a house. It's like December. They're probably muddy and gross. So I didn't think it was weird. But the statement and Gomez's interview, according to Janie, helped convince the public of Scott's guilt in the case. And she said, and this is the best thing I think Janie's ever said, quote, He's on death row because he asked Gloria Gomez to take her shoes off. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? Don't you know who Gloria Gomez is? You must be a murderer. Gomez refuted these claims on Dr. Phil's show, stating, quote, but at the end of the day, that body was discovered where Scott Peterson went fishing. That you cannot deny. 
Yeah, but he's not a murderer because he asked you to take his shoes off, Gloria. <laughs> like, that's not odd behavior, I don't think. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he had somebody helping him. Take his shoes off? <laughs> no, kill his oh. wife. <laughs> Still, it's it's too... The theory is that he killed her and then went on the fishing trip, dumped her in the... The whole theory hinges on the idea that he dumped her body when he went fishing on Christmas Eve morning. And if she was seen... After he left for the marina, that doesn't add up. Something's missing. But somebody else might have taken her while she was walking the dog, killed her, and then brought her to Scott, and then Scott dumped her. See, when you stopped talking, I could see the look in your eyes that was like, this is dumb. (laughs) (laughs) This seems dumb. If he was going to have somebody else do it, why would he then say, then come and meet me at this place? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Well, <laughs> maybe he hired a hitman and maybe he wasn't the one that dumped her body, but he used the fishing trip as an alibi to place him somewhere else. Why would he go fishing in the place where he told the hitman to dump the body? <laughs> because he's obviously not too smart. Okay. <laughs> I, I feel like we could poke a lot of holes in that theory. Well, that's my theory as I, of right now. I get Keep that going. you're trying. <laughs> So Janie didn't manage to convince Gomez, obviously, who was very pissed off about having to take her shoes off. (laughs) But her new evidence and claims that Scott deserves another trial did catch the eye of Mark Godsey, a former award-winning New York City federal prosecutor and the current director of the Ohio Innocence Project. Godsey claimed, quote, the forensics that were presented back at his original trial and what we know now, it's a totally different ballgame. Godsey further explained the issues with Peterson's original trial in a blog post he wrote for Psychology Today. It's in three parts. Why Scott Peterson is innocent. Part one, part two, part three. The first problem with the conviction, according to Godsey, is the fact that this decision was made based on what lawyers like him call, quote, demeanor evidence. This basically means that the public saw him acting aloof or unemotional and immediately considered him guilty. Like we've been saying. It didn't help that Nancy Grace went on television almost nightly claiming that Peterson's behavior indicated that he was lying and hiding something, Nancy Grace. which therefore made him guilty. Yeah, you can't judge it on his behavior. You need evidence. Yeah, that's the whole point is that everybody immediately assumed he was guilty because of the way he was acting. After the trial, many of the jurors even stated that Peterson's seemingly remorseless demeanor was the most critical factor in their decision to convict him. And send a man to death row. Yeah. People grieve in different ways. Like not saying that he was innocent because I don't know really what I believe at this point. But people grieve in different ways. And just because somebody is grieving in a way that you wouldn't doesn't make them a murderer. That's a good way to put it. Thank you. I almost don't want to read how God's explained (laughs) it. but, But I will just to give the full the full background of it. So Godsey said. Quote, some people appear aloof or emotionless because they are in shock or denial. Some people freak out. The assumption that there is an appropriate or normal way to act in an unfamiliar traumatic situation and that those who do not respond that way are likely guilty is simply bad psychology and bad law. Yep. Agreed. Again, like you said, it doesn't prove that Peterson is innocent or guilty, but the unfair weight given to this demeanor evidence... Mm -hmm. It's not evidence. It yeah. shouldn't be evidence. Yeah. His demeanor should not have been a critical factor in deciding the case. Right. I mean, I can understand that being hard to overlook when you're looking at a person this critically. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. but you can think that he's a crappy person 
while not convicting him of murder. Yes. <laughs> Next, Godsey pointed out the Modesto police's tunnel vision in the case. If you'll remember from our first episode, the lead detective on the Peterson case, Al Brocchini, almost immediately had a feeling about Scott. It was actually Bueller that said he thought immediately that, oh, this is the guy and I have a feeling about him, but they didn't go public with it. He even admitted under cross-examination that they singled him out as the prime suspect early on and therefore specified their search to evidence that would link him to the crime. So this tunnel vision, according to Godsey, caused the police to ignore important evidence that should have been explored and to even remove contradictory evidence from reports or make incorrect statements to the media and the jury. So a lot like, uh, I haven't really watched Making a Murderer in a long time, but a lot like Making a Murderer, where you just, you see this guy, you're like, this guy's the murderer, let's look for stuff that can go with this guy. And not sad. Yes. You decide who the guy is, and then you have to find your evidence around it instead of finding the evidence and then having that lead you to the... Yeah, they did their job backwards. Yes. Finally, Godsey addressed the problem with the forensic science presented at the trial. He argued that all three types of forensic evidence presented against Scott to prove his guilt are now understood to be unreliable, if not downright incorrect. Godsey believes that this evidence was allowed in court due to a confirmation bias, which happens when forensic scientists are told by the police and the prosecutors what the so-called right answer should be. There were three pieces of forensic evidence presented at Scott's trial, one of which being the testimony of hydrologist Rick Chang, who I mentioned earlier. The problem with that testimony happened right on the stand when Chang admitted that his findings were not precise and he hadn't actually done any studies of the movement of bodies of water. I don't know why they thought he was going to be an expert witness. So Godsey also claimed that nationally recognized experts have looked over Chang's testimony and determined it to be completely incorrect. Wow. Now let's get to the dog scent evidence. A trailing dog named Trimble was reported to have alerted to Lacey's scent around a boat ramp in the Berkeley Marina. A trailing dog detects scents in the air, while a tracking dog follows a path of physical contact that the subject has made with a particular surface. So if you are trying to find a missing person, for instance, the dogs that were probably looking for Brandon Lawson were tracking dogs. Mm -hmm. Trailing dogs are picking up scents in the air, not where people have been. So how is that relevant to Lacey's disappearance? It's not. Uh, It's important to know also that both of these dogs are also completely different from cadaver dogs who are trained to sense dead, dead bodies. bodies. Yeah. Godsey noted that Trimble was given Lacey's sunglasses and Lacey's hairbrush to pick up her scent, both of which were open to cross-contamination from Scott's scent since they were both kept in her purse and Scott has admitted to touching her purse. And again, husband and wife, their, their yeah. scent is going to be on all the things that yeah, they Yeah, they basically share a scent at this point. More importantly, in his non-contact vehicle trail scent certification tests, Tribble was wrong 75% of the time. Oh my God, poor <laughs> Tribble. <laughs> yeah, he's not. Oh, he's no good at his job. Oh, little pup. <laughs> yeah, he's. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Tribble's probably living a great life out there, but he was wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> oh. It's okay. He just wasn't meant to be a trailing dog. <laughs> Nationally renowned dog scent experts have reviewed the testimony from the trial and said that it was. Completely unreliable to any expert adequately trained in the field of canine scent detection. And that 
the searching protocols employed in this case were virtually guaranteed to produce an unreliable result. Yeah. Oh, poor Trimble. <laughs> oh, I feel so bad for him. <laughs> I'm sure he's living a great life. He just is not a trailing dog anymore. I used to watch videos of um, dogs passing their like seeing eye dog tests and like cry to myself. Oh, that's so They cute. just look so happy when they would pass. <laughs> Have you watched there's I think there's a show on Animal Planet where you watch them grow from training puppies to like moving on with their seeing eye people. Oh. And it's so funny to see them put the vests on these puppies and the puppies are just like <laughs> they just like fall <laughs> over. They can't stand anymore. Oh, the weight that. of this new responsibility yeah. is just <laughs> Oh, that's adorable. So finally, Godsey discussed the testimony of Dr. Gregory DeVore, who testified that Connor died in utero on December 24th, which coincidentally worked exactly with the prosecution's theory of when Scott killed Lacey. Dr. DeVore, which is a terrifying name now that I'm saying it out loud, determined this by examining the fetal bones and comparing them to the last known ultrasound. However, he was told before conducting his research that the prosecution believed he had died on Christmas Eve. This, again, is what Godsey was mentioning earlier, where they they tell you what the right answer should be. Right. So this may have inspired a bias in the doctor, but worse still was that he conducted the analysis incorrectly. He apparently used the wrong mathematical formula and didn't do it well. So Dr. Philip Ginti, who wrote the book on this particular method of analysis, correctly measured the bones and employed the correct mathematical formula. Dr. Ginti concluded that Connor actually lived well past December 24th and may have been alive as late as January 3rd, 2003. Oh my God, I just got chills. Would he have been born then by that point? Um, His due date wasn't at that point, but he could have been born early if... I, my theory is that if a pregnant woman was kidnapped and under that much stress, yeah, you could give birth that early. She yeah. was eight months when she was kidnapped. Yeah. And I think you could give, mu- you could give birth early any point in the ninth month. So you think she was kidnapped, eh? Well, this theory really supports that. Yeah. Like, I mean, these findings really support this theory. Yeah. Because it doesn't, she couldn't have died on the 24th and then given birth to him on January 3rd. It doesn't. I have so many chills right now. Um, yeah, but like going back to the dog thing, mm-hmm. like just, just the fact that the dog was running around outside with its leash on makes me feel like she was taken off the street while walking the dog. Yeah. So uh, an important part that I hadn't mentioned because it's just everywhere. So I didn't, I don't know why I didn't, is that a robbery happened on their street on Christmas right across Eve the street. Right? Yeah. Right across the street. So it's entirely possible that Lacey saw these people and could identify these people. I don't know if they weren't wearing masks or anything Mm -hmm. or that she could have just alerted the authorities and they were like, grab her. But yeah, that's seeming a little bit more likely. Again, I can't I can't really say, but it doesn't seem to matter because despite any of these arguments, his appeals have been denied pretty much across the board. There is currently one under review that includes all of this new evidence but whether or not the state of california will pay any attention to it is is yet to be seen um they seem to be giving it the old adnan sayed treatment and Mm. just going um no i feel like we're right they they're obviously looking at it kamala harris looked at the the previous one so it's more than adnan sayed but yeah yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't I don't know. If this guy is innocent, he is the stupidest and unluckiest guy I've ever heard of. Yeah. Like, oh, I am trying to prove to people that I didn't kill my wife. Let me dye my hair <laughs> and go on the run and then I don't just, uh, Yeah, I don't he he definitely did not make himself look any better right. in the time that she was missing. But again, doesn't necessarily mean he's a murderer. But whether or not we think that, Scott Peterson is currently serving his time on death row at San Quentin State Prison. His execution, which is why I felt very compelled to do this, was planned for 2021. But in March 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom issued a moratorium on all executions and granted 737 inmates a temporary reprieve, including Scott Peterson. I also learned in researching this that they um, also gave the reprieve to a definite serial killer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why? <laughs> um, because uh, Governor Newsom hopes to revise the California justice system in this time, stating that in the past, the death penalty has, quote, discriminated against defendants who are mentally ill, black and brown, or can't afford expensive legal representation. It has provided no public safety benefit or value as a deterrent. It has wasted billions of taxpayer dollars. Okay. So California still has the death penalty? Apparently. If they were to get rid of the death penalty, would all of the people waiting on death row be spared? Or I'm not 100% sure how that would work because yeah. in some cases... If it was decided before the death penalty changes, it's you, still, yeah, it's it's still good to go. Yeah. You know, like the, the Edward Wayne Edwards case, when it was seen that the crime was committed before the death penalty was changed. You right. Could get that. Well, there were extenuating circumstances there, too. But I'm, I'm not sure how that would work. I guess California would have to figure that out. Right. Like state to state. It's yeah. But still, neither Godsey nor I can really say whether or not Scott Peterson is innocent or guilty. Lacey and Connor's real killer could still be out there or the jury might have gotten it right all those years ago. We can't say for sure. What's clear, however, at least to me, is that there were major issues with his original trial. And in my opinion, any one of those is enough to at least give him a new trial. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, there was like a lot a lot going on with that trial. There's a lot. Again, just like with Adnan Sayed, there's enough reasonable doubt here to not put him to death yeah i agree again i there's nothing here that would completely exonerate him except really for connor i mean if they look at the evidence with connor's birth birth and yeah and when that scientist or that forensic pathologist believes he died you know, that could probably work in his favor. Or if they find the person who actually did it, that could work in his favor. If somebody came forward with yeah. like a new lead or a tip or even a confession. Yeah. That's probably unlikely though. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially if they were robbers that just picked her up. I mean, because if, if I was a robber and they immediately focused on the husband, I'd be like, sweet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yes, lit, dude. Lit. We're going to get away with this. I'm going to say like, no, because I feel like if they did, they would have questioned them right. at least. Or I don't know if they did question them where they ruled out. And that's why. Yeah, um, I I don't know. Uh, but that would definitely be mentioned. This case is such so high profile that people are still 
paying attention to it. I honestly couldn't after watching that. I did watch that oxygen docuseries. Um, and after watching that, I just couldn't believe that it, the execution date is basically right around the corner or was right around the corner. And that was so terrifying to me because after watching the show, I was like, I'm not, I'm not sure that he did it. I'm not a hundred percent like back a few weeks for Edward Wayne Edwards. Yeah. Yeah, You asked me back then I would have been like, Oh, Scott Peterson killed his wife. And this, like this week I'm like, Hmm. Yeah. I don't even know. He's not a good guy, but I don't know that that, that he's that a murderer. That means that he's a murderer. Yeah, right. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> you can send us your thoughts at deaddrunkpod at gmail.com. Or you can slide into our DMs with your theories on Scott Peterson and Lacey Peterson's murder at deaddrunkcrime on Instagram. Or on Twitter at deaddrunkcrime. Or you can read all about it and dive into the sources yourself and see our pictures of the drinks or just get the recipes. I don't know what I'm going to post at deadrunkcrime.home.blog. You can also check out our Facebook. I can't get the Instagram widget to work, but you can get to our Instagram yourself and you can listen to the podcast right there on the website. Or you can go to Spotify or Apple or all the other things. Stitcher or Google Play or CastBox or I don't even know what all these things are. Tons of things. Use them. Uh, Podbean. Yeah. Oh, that's a thing. And then (laughs) you can buy merch. There's shirts and there's mason jars and there's sweatshirts and Christmas is... You missed it, but... (laughs) <laughs> you miss christmas but there's birthdays coming up yeah i'm Mine, sure you know I, somebody that has a birthday coming up yeah i don't know maybe like me <laughs> please buy shelby our merch and send it to her <laughs> please buy my own merch and send it to me for my birthday thank you so much everybody. <laughs> i really appreciate it the thanks. link will be in the show notes and i think that's yeah. everything all right i think dude. we covered it all seriously though let us know what you think this is a really interesting case and more importantly it's our last one of the year oh my god that's so crazy we made it through 2019 i honestly don't know how i don't know either but But i'm super ready for the roaring 20s oh my (laughs) god same dude hopefully we can get through it without another prohibition but i mean there might be another depression at the end but i think (laughs) i think there's already a depression (laughs) (laughs) but luckily there's no prohibition to keep us down so we're good um all right so short caboose today because we already have a long episode what did you do for christmas girl i don't know we didn't have christmas yet how (laughs) come you can't ask questions like well (laughs) i would know what i did you already know what you did (laughs) yeah i went to (laughs) christmas eve at my aunt's house And we open presents and my cousin is home from the army and my other cousin is home from California. So we're all there and we had lots of fun and we drank lots. And there was only mild um, disagreements between my grandparents and the rest of my family. And then on Christmas Day, uh, we just kind of like opened presents and like ate food and it was fun. What did you do? Halfway through that, I was like, did this really happen already? And <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Every Christmas. <laughs> every Christmas, there are some mild disagreements between you. Yes. <laughs> Somebody usually ruins the holiday. Oh, okay. So what I did was I, Christmas Eve, we went to a Seven Fishes dinner. 
nice. at Joe Willie's because nobody wants to cook it anymore. Then we go to my aunt's house where we have cake and listen to the South Park Christmas album that only the two of us enjoy. Nobody else in the family <laughs> enjoys it, but That's fine. it's her house, so we make them. Um, then we have cake because it's my mom's birthday. And then on Christmas, we wake up. Usually we eat cinnamon buns, but I have to figure out how to make gluten-free, dairy-free blueberry muffins because of Cody's Crohn's. So... <laughs> Love that. Yeah. So it's, it's a new, it new was tradition. a, I'm talking about it as a future thing. I can't do this. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> we're just going to leave it all in. You guys know we're fake. <laughs> fake bitches. Ah, uh, anyway, then we're going to just like draw, pull, pull toys out of a sack because nobody wanted to do secret Santa or think of a theme or so everybody went out and bought random shit from random stores. And I love that. Yeah. I hope you get like a, blender or something i think it's gonna be like toys under five dollars oh i hope you get um a shopkin what the hell is that i don't know my my kids like the shopkins oh do you know what pj masks is yeah what the hell is that it's a tv show that's what all the parents told me i was working at fair once and this kid was like i love pj masks and i was like pj that's a sorry yeah. i don't and the parent was like it's a tv show and i was like okay that literally tells me nothing about it like why don't it's I, like, it's, I think it's about like little superhero kids is i want to say Catboy is one of them what is pj masks though like why what is why what does that mean um like do they wear pajamas yeah, and then like, put on masks it's like little kids as superheroes but the it's name like, the name is my problem. I don't understand what it is. From the name. It happens at night. They're wearing their PJs. They put on their pajamas and they activate their superpowers. Okay. Catboy, Owlet, and Gecko. Wow, I knew Catboy was one of them. He's the blue one. I couldn't get that from the name. You know, like when you hear Paw Patrol, you're like, oh, it's puppies that do like law enforcement and security jobs and all this stuff. Yeah. PJ Masks is just like... <laughs> who. who Whose name is that? Is that a new rapper? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by PJ Masks. <laughs> I don't know what you are. Yeah, you're confusing know. to me. You're right. You're right. Well, so yeah, that's it. If you're curious, I have ten sources for this. Wow, I think it's pretty similar to we love Iceman. We love a researcher. Yes, me, man. All right. Bye, Mom. Bye, Mom.